welcome to the Function Health Podcast. My name is Sean Strayer, and together with my co-host Ryan Beck, we aim to deliver the best content in health, longevity, medical education, and scientific career development. Before we begin this exciting episode, we want to make a very clear point that the Function Health team does not condone or encourage the distribution, acquisition, or use of any illicit substances. Hello, and welcome back to the Function Health Podcast. My name is Ryan Beck, and together with my co-host, Sean Strayer, we welcome you to discuss with us the wonderful world of psychedelics. Now, this has been a topic that has been interesting to me for several years now, and uh, it is one that is surrounded in controversy. And it's an important discussion to have that we have today. Absolutely, Ryan. You know, this is a topic that's gaining a lot. It's just being talked more and more about in both popular media and scientific literature. And I think with most controversial topics, there's just a lot of misinformation on both sides. So our goal today is to provide you with a nice review of the literature and the science so you can make an informed decision on your own. That's a great point. I think most of this misunderstanding is coming from the emotional attachments to the issue at hand rather than the evidence-based facts. Uh, the psychedelic drugs have been in use for well over 9,000 years, and we have pictures of cavemen on the walls that are taking these psychedelic substances and having these psychedelic experiences. And they've been freely used up until very recently in 1970, where the drugs were banned under the United States Controlled Substances Act, and this act was deemed all the classic psychedelic drugs as well as MDMA under the Schedule 1. Yeah, I know. It's incredible to think about all the cultures that have used psychedelics as part of their religious rites and in their cultures and just how quickly that all changed as a result of that act. Now, a lot of the listeners, they're probably not familiar with how scheduling works as far as drugs in the United States. So can you just kind of go through that for us? Like, what's an example of a Schedule 1 drug and how does that change from a Schedule 2 drug? So the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States, the DEA, has created a five-class scheduling system with one being no current medical use and high potential for abuse. And these are things like methamphetamine, bath salts, and heroin. And its sister, fentanyl, which is a Schedule II drug, um, has fantastic analgesic and anesthetic properties, and that's why it's under the Schedule II. That's so fentanyl is a Schedule II drug. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's where a lot of the people's public opinion has been skewed about psychedelics because when I'm looking at a drug like magic mushrooms, and I see that's in the same classification as something like heroin or PCP, I'm automatically going to impute that there's the same level of risk, right? You're absolutely right. And, uh, but I think they're getting a little bored of the introduction. Why don't we get into the science of pharmacology behind some of these psychedelics? I'd love to. Yeah, let's hop right into it. So DMT or dimethyltryptamine, this is a psychoactive derivative of the indolamine metabolite tryptamine. And it's actually interesting because if you were to look at a biochemical drawing of the amino acid tryptophan, the only difference between tryptophan and DMT is the removal of a carboxylic acid group and the addition of two um, methyl groups on the amine moiety. And so DMT has really interesting pharmacokinetics, and we're going to kind of go into it now. I feel like it's an important thing to talk about when it comes to DMT. So we've identified two degradation pathways as far as DMT. One of them is the cytochrome 4 P450 group of enzymes, but the more prevalent one is the monoamine oxidase group of enzymes. And so there's this theory that DMT is actually 
produced in our brain endogenously. But the reason we aren't tripping all the time is because we have these monoamine oxidase enzymes that help break it down to a non-psychoactive molecule. So when users, so it's not orally available, right? So when users want to get high off a of DMT, they either have to smoke it or take it with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, such as the case of ayahuasca that they use in South America a lot. And so, like other psychedelics, DMT binds to the 5-hydroxyl tryptamine receptor, which is actually where serotonin naturally binds to as well. Now, when serotonin or these drugs, they bind to that receptor, we get a we get a G-coupled protein signaling cascade that the net result is a release of intracellular calcium. And as anybody that's taken physiology knows, this release of intracellular calcium, it actually depolarizes the cell by changing the resting membrane potential. So in a lot of the studies that we're going to be talking about, you'll notice that DMT is not really used in a lot of these studies because it's such a potent effect. So, you know, they're more likely to use something like psilocybin or LSD we get into. But it's really interesting because when people take DMT, they see these crazy geometric shapes. They get a disassociation, probably from a disruption in the default mode network. And the crazy thing is they see these spiritual beings that they describe as mechanical elves. It's very interesting. So, Ryan, why don't you talk about a drug that pretty much all of our listeners have heard of, and that's LSD. I'm pretty sure everybody's heard of that. So commonly known as acid, I hope everyone has heard of LSD so far, unless you're living under a rock. So LSD is lysergic acid diethylamide, and it's a psychoactive substance that was first synthesized by a Swiss chemist of, uh, his name was Albert Hoffman, Albert Hoffman. And that was back in 1938. And it wasn't found to have those psychoactive properties until five years later when he went back and he was messing with his experiments and he got some on his fingertips and he went home and had a psychedelic experience. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Uh, so LSD quickly became a popular recreational drug in the 1960s and it got banned less than 10 years later under the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. LSD has psychoactive effects, which is in doses as low as only 100 micrograms. We're talking micro, not milligrams, right? And these can cause synesthesias, which is the intermingling of senses. You have auditory and visual hallucinations, as well as like your typical sympathomimetic effects, like with an increase in heart rate. And these last around 12 hours. Your typical dose is around 50 to 400 mics, uh, and it's ingested orally or absorbed through the oral mucosal membrane. LSD targets the same serotonin 5-HT2A receptors found in the central nervous system, and there's two pathways for this receptor. First and more understood is that G-protein-coupled pathway, and it's just like we were describing it earlier, right? Then you have the less-known beta-arrestin pathway, and that serves to terminate this G-protein signaling but it has its own signaling as well, right? So this transduction activated by the ergolines are likely responsible for uh, LSD's effects. And it has a crystalline structure along with an extracellular loop two protein that serves to encapsulate the LSD bound in that receptor. And it's tightly bound to this 5-HT2A receptor for up to 15 hours. And uh, some of our therapeutic applications of LSD has been limited due to the controlled state of the substance. However, a study done in 2016 by Peter Gasser and some others gave 12 patients with life-threatening conditions such as terminal cancer. Yeah. Uh, and it was double-blind placebo-controlled. They had drug-free psychotherapy sessions that were supplemented by two LSD psychotherapy sessions given two to three weeks apart. 
the participants were randomized to either receive 200 mics or 20 mics of LSD. The study used the state trait anxiety inventory as an outcome measure, and they found significant reductions at the two months and sustained at a year after the study had concluded. And to put a cherry on top of this whole thing, right, the, no adverse events were recorded, not a single one. And I'm so excited to see the future of the further research into LSD. So there's another drug with uh, serotonergic activity, but it's not commonly classified under the classic psychedelics, and that's MDMA. So why don't you go into how this is going to fit into our framework today? Yeah, so MDMA was actually synthesized back in 1912 by a German pharmaceutical company. And it was originally as it would propose to work to help as a uh, major hemorrhaging, but it really didn't pan out that way. And it really wasn't until the uh, 1970s when a pharmacologist by the name of Alexander Shulgin was introduced to MDMA actually by one of his pharmacology students. And he started experimenting with it. And him and his wife, they noticed all these empathogenic uh, effects. And that's a very important topic because a lot of people don't even put MDMA in the same realm as psychedelics. They put it in the empathogen category because you're not really getting these hallucinogenic effects. But after he was experimenting with it, he was just blown away. And he felt like he could, his colleagues could use it in psychotherapy to really boost its efficacy. And that actually did happen from the 70s and 80s until in 1985, it was reclassed as a Schedule One drug. However, you know, MDMA is still used today in a lot of the rave scenes and the club scenes. A lot of people call it Molly. But the problem with these settings in particular is we run into the issue of hyperthermia, dehydration, and then a very concerning one, which is the hyponatremia that can actually come from trying to treat the dehydration with water. And, you know, you've probably seen it a bunch at EDC. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild stuff, so... Right. I, I was talking to you that week, actually, and uh, I was saying I have all these patients that are having seizures, and we didn't know why. We we're just so perplexed is why all these patients are coming to us, and they're seizing, or they're seizing in the crowd, and we have to go to them, right? And we had to do a little bit of research to find out why that was. Yeah. But, you know, even despite that, you know, uh, David Nutt, who is a brilliant neuropharmacologist from the UK, his group, they came up with a list of 20 recreational drugs, and they ranked them from most harmful to least harmful. And this was harm to the user, harm to society. And they actually ranked MDMA as 18 on that list. So, I mean, that's just something to think about. And so it's, it is a serotonergic, it has serotonergic affinity for serotonin receptors, but it also has effects at beta adrenergic receptors and alpha adrenergic receptors. And it kind of explains some of the sympathomimetic properties of this drug. So um, there, it is a little bit risky when we talk about, you know, when, they, when people buy drugs off the street, MDMA is one of those ones that you don't know what it's cut with. A lot of people are putting things in like caffeine, ketamine even, and it's just, that is a, that is a big risk that we've identified. But, you know, they are studying it again in clinical controlled settings. There was a Nature of Medicine paper that was published just in 2021, and they took a placebo group, and then they took a group that they gave MDMA to. And these were people with long-term PTSD and depressive symptoms. And what they found was just the MDMA group with concurrent psychotherapy. 
I mean, they just, it was a significant attenuation in their symptoms, way above and beyond that of the placebo. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they integrate this into future studies. And that's and this is another one that we're really going to keep out on our radar. Right, that David Nutt study is definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. So Ryan, when a lot of people think about psychedelic drugs, the first drug that actually comes in mind next to LSD or the psilocybin-containing mushrooms. So can you go into the science behind that? So, so a lot of people don't, wouldn't like classify psilocybin. They wouldn't recognize it. Like they don't even know how to pronounce it or say it. What, what does it even start with, right? Does it start with an S? But it's actually going to start with a P here, right? So psilocybin is going to be the psychedelic psychoactive compound that is produced in many species of mushrooms. And that's how they got their name, right? Magic mushrooms. Uh, these fungi, these fantastic fungi, have you seen it on Netflix? It's great. So they synthesize these psychoactive compounds through like, I'm not going to get into the biosynthesis crazy, but these fungi synthesize these psychoactive compounds through a series of biosynthetic reactions, starting with the L-tryptophan, and they finally get to the active compound psilocybin. Uh, and so after you ingest psilocybin, it's going to be absorbed into the bloodstream and at the jejunum, at the, in the small intestine, it's going to travel to the liver via the hepatic portal system. And there, uh, it's going to alkaline phosphatase in the liver is going to remove this phosphate group off of psilocybin. It's going to turn into psilocin, which is a structural analog of serotonin, right? So these are all serotonergic agonists, right? So however, while in the liver, we're going to have this thing called the first pass effect. And so the first time psilocybin enters the liver, 80 to 90% of it is going to get metabolized to its inactive form, all these other metabolites that I'm not going to get into. And that remaining 10 to 20% is going to get into the blood and it's able to cross the blood brain barrier, the BBB. Psilocybin itself has a high affinity, a very high affinity for the 5-HT2A receptors. Same receptors. Exactly. It's in the central nervous system, right? And so it has a lower affinity for the 5-HT1A and D subunits, and it's activated via the G-protein couple receptors. Oh, you guys should catch a, catch a trend here, right? <laughs> And these, res these receptors uh, are responsible for a variety of functions in the brain, like body temperature, appetite, mood regulation, and your motivation to go and do things. And so we have differences in dosages, right? So uh, typically in clinic clinical trials, you have pure psilocybin, lab-grade pure psilocybin, and that's not going to be available recreationally. And so these clinical trials are done. These participants are consuming anywhere from 10 to 50 milligrams. Milligrams. Milligrams, exactly, of pure psilocybin. But for recreational use, that's not available. So they're going to grab it organic mushrooms, right? And they're going to grow their own mushrooms and it's at a dose of one to five grams. And it's for more is not always better, right? This is, this is not one of those cases. And at a dose of one gram, your users are going to have a sense of euphoria and increase in motivation. But at these higher two to five gram doses, you're going to have that classic psychedelic experience that you hear about all the time. And so one of the, some of these effects, right? So enough of the biosynthesis. Uh, you have these users that are describing these feelings of open-mindedness, super open-mindedness. Like they're just, they're saying like, this is the most spiritual moment in my single, in my entire life. This is, this is it. And uh, you have the synesthesias again, and you have a mild time dilation effect. Uh, you have profound pupillary dilation. So that a lot at EDC, you just hockey pucks on these, on these pupils. And you have an increase in heart rate. And uh, that begins about 20 to 90 minutes after ingestion because it's oral. And it can last up to 12 hours based on um, strain as well. Yeah. So some of the studies, there's, this, is, this is some study backed. It's been very... Yeah. 
very small studies because of the scheduling on these drugs, right? So the two most recent and noteworthy to me uh, were the John Hopkins University study and the New York University study. The John Hopkins University study, which included 51 patients, uh, used a crossover design where each patient served as their own control. That was great. That was fantastic to me. And they received both an experimental high dose of pure psilocybin at 22 milligrams and a low dose at one milligram that served as an active placebo control. And in the New York study, it had 29 patients, only 29 here, and it randomized to receive psilocybin at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram and the active placebo niacin in the crossover design involving one drug each session. Both trials had pre and post treatment psychotherapy sessions and included patients with end of life disorders such as cancer, terminal cancer, and a range of psychiatric disorders in the mood and anxiety realms. I think this is a great study. Both studies demonstrated robust and immediate critical lasting effects well after the six months had passed. And this, they, they used a standardized measured uh, measures of anxiety and depression, right? So we have standardized tests. Uh, and this, they used the state trait uh, anxiety inventory. And both studies demonstrated excellent safety profiles of the experimental intervention group of the medically ill population. Symptoms of these uh, studies showed they were generally limited to transient increases in blood pressure. That's from the sympathomimetic effects we were talking about earlier, but not a single adverse medical or psychological outcome was reported in either study. I mean, it's pretty incredible to think about. Absolutely. Not a single one. So there's the therapeutic potential of these psychedelics we've talked about today. I don't think it can be understated, right? These drugs induce cognitive, antidepressant, anxiolytic, and anti-addictive effects in the brain. And this is done by enhancing the neuroplasticity at the molecular, neuronal, synaptic, and even the dendritic level. That's the most important right there. So they increase brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This is a whole mouthful for you guys, but the, it's the BDNF, BDNF, and it outlasts the acute effects of the psychedelic. So even though that trip only lasted four hours, you have lasting effects up six months and beyond from these BDNF levels increasing. And so this increases the dendritic spine thickness and density in the prefrontal cortex, it's the PFC. And it's thought that depression is related to dendritic spine atrophy in the PFC. Uh, So it's enough about mushy. So Sean, can you talk a little bit about how modern medicine is commonly treating depression pharmacologically instead of using these classic psychedelics? Yeah. So like you said, a lot of the potential benefits that we're talking about from psychedelics, it's in the context of mental health, you know, particular PTSD and depression. And so you have these, you have some of these studies, but I mean, I, and I just want to contrast it for you with how we're currently treating depression pharmacologically. So the most commonly employed drug in our toolbox for treating depression, treating symptoms of PTSD, are going to be things like our SSRIs. Okay, that's a very common one. So the SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they're a class of drugs that help increase the transit time and also activity of serotonin in the synaptic cleft. And this comes from the monoamine hypothesis of depression, which says, hey, we have a global decrease in our depressed patients of neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. And so this this helps by having more serotonin in the synaptic cleft. So 
unlike there have been drugs in the past like SNRIs or TCAs, these are some of our older antidepressants, but the problem is they had more activity outside of the serotonergic realm. They would affect things like dopamine, they would affect adrenergic receptors, and there was a lot of side effects that came from that. Now, SSRIs, the reason they're used so frequently is because they have less effects because they're more selective to serotonin, right? Right. It's like the first generation versus the second generation. Exactly. And that's why SSRIs are used so much. But there's still some really bad potential problems. I mean, from something like QT prolongation to even suicidal ideation in younger patients, okay? And that's the major stuff. I mean, we also have things like dizziness, weight gain, um, loss in sexual dysfunction, okay? And anxiety is an actual symptom, a side effect that is caused by a lot of SSRIs. So, and I mean, if you think about, so another thing that we worry about with serotonin, the SSRIs is a thing called serotonin syndrome. So if you have too much serotonin or serotonin globally, and this could be done by either abuse of SSRIs or a lot of these patients that take SSRIs are on, they have comorbid conditions that would make them take another drug that also increases serotonin. And you get this really nasty syndrome that it's basically a medical emergency. And you know, the, I guess the whole point that I'm trying to make here is just because a medication is commonly prescribed, that doesn't mean it's always best for the patient and without harm to the patient. And that's true across all medicine, but particularly in psychiatry, right? And so what I really hope the field leans towards, I hope they start studying these drugs more. And, you know, we should, th- we should study any type of alternative therapy that comes with less side effects, right? Like you said, in the psilocybin studies, there was no adverse outcomes. And that is truly remarkable. I mean, can't overstate that enough. Right. And all these SSRIs, SNRIs, all these classic antidepressants, Gen 1 and Gen 2, all have this black box warning on them. Like the first two weeks, you're going to have an increase in suicidal thoughts, even though these patients are already feeling suicidal. I think that's really dangerous. No, it's, it's very high risk and it's just, it's accepted, you know, because we've just, we've been using it for years. It has decent safety profile, but, you know, medicine is always changing. And I think we should, you know, we should start, I hope the field adopts some of these other medications. Definitely. I definitely agree. There's a lot of things in medicine like that. Yeah. I hope to get to you guys soon on those. So Ryan, another psychedelic topic that has basically gone viral online is the idea of microdosing. So can you explain that for us? I have heard a lot of recent people talk about microdosing to me, and I didn't know enough about it. So I went and dived into the research myself to get educated, educated just about the subject, right? Like, I'm not going to tell you my opinion about it because my opinion doesn't matter. The science of this matters, right? So it's really uncharted territory. This is what I found. It's, it's, there's, no, there's no real studies about this, and it's had been growing in popularity. Uh, and uh, so the world of microdosing, right? So there's a practice of consuming sub-perceptual, very, very low doses of either LSD or psilocybin. And uh, these are the mushrooms, right? Not the pure psilocybin. You got to keep that in mind. And so the scientific literature contains very little research on this practice. And there's been limited reporting on adverse events associated. Right. Because these people, these layman people are, that are growing their own mushrooms and taking it medicinally for it's all at okay. home they're not going right. to yeah. report to some form or any study and so the, the dosing is uh 50 to 200 milligrams right of ground dry mushrooms right so about 0.5 to 2.20 grams correct right, right, right. Yeah. point two to point five no 
point oh five to point two. Gotcha. Point Thank zero you. Point, point there we go. Two. So our dimensional analysis is off <laughs> a little bit. So these are the dried mushrooms, and this is a weighted dose, and it's still sub perceptual. And then users typically take around the one hundred dose, and it's around three to four times a week, so they don't have the tachyphylaxis buildup with the psychedelics. And so they have a self-reported increase in mood, motivation, and they have self-reported significant reductions in anxiety, depression. There's many forms where they're just talking about how they just hopped off of their SSRIs or their SNRIs, and they've been great for years, right? And so they were talking about how they, they were blunted. They were blunted forever on their SSRIs, and they weren't living life to the fullest, and they were able to hop off of those medications safely, I hope, under a medical practice and <laughs> use these psychedelics, these microdosing psychedelics. Yeah. So very, I really hope we get some, some study on this because it really, the way I think about it, it makes me wonder. So if we have an 80%, you know, first pass effect by the liver of something like psilocybin, it makes you wonder if you think about it, they're only getting micrograms of the actual active drug and so it makes you wonder, is this placebo? Is this, is this a true thing? I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. So we really want to reiterate that Function Health does not endorse the possession or use of any legal substances. But I think it is, as we talk about this, it's very important for us to talk about some of the safety tips. And this is coming from a harm reduction standpoint. So the first and most important thing is for people to test the drugs that they get. And this can be done at some clinics have it, and then just a reputable testing kit online. It's also important to understand how the dosing works and which drugs respond more with a weight-based dosing versus just a general dose. From what I've from all these studies, it sounds like the difference between a gram of psilocybin and six grams is just astronomical, right? So it's very important. And you know, another salient characteristic is to consider the possibility of polypharmacy. So anything you read online by any type of authoritative figure that has talked about psychedelics, they just really implore people to not use it with anything like cocaine, alcohol, marijuana, and to just use it on its own because there's a lot of interactions in the brain and mixing all of those can be dangerous, right? We talked about serotonin syndrome, but there's a lot of other things. So another factor though that really determines from what, you know, a lot of these studies, they talk about this idea of set and setting and environment basically. So Ryan, can you explain to us what the environment is and that set and setting idea? Yeah, that's a really famous hearing that discussing psychedelics uh they got the conversation regarding set and setting and the set is really mindset at the end of the day and uh at, and that's at the time of ingestion of these psychedelics and it can include anything from like your religious beliefs to like traumatic past experiences that still could be lingering and your consciousness or your subconsciousness at the end of the day and the setting that's exactly what it sounds like right so that's instead of the internal world in your mind it's the external world that you're surrounded with by this psychedelic experience so and when we talk about set and setting i guess yeah we're talking about it there could be a positive context and there could definitely be a negative context so does it seem like from what you've read a negative set and setting would that set someone up for like a possible bad trip or negative outcome from everything I've read, 100%, right? It's directly influencing what's going on during psych your psychedelic trip, right? So if yeah. you're going in with a bad set or a bad setting, you're, you're just not in a good place, you're probably not going to have a good time on these psychedelics. Yeah, and it makes you think that it's very important, and I, I, I'm sure the medical community, I'm sure when they set these 
studies up, I'm sure they consider this, right? 100%. So the door's locked, the door's shut, yeah. right? And there's a sitter in the room that's yeah. trained to help them guide through these sessions. Right. It's not just, you go out into the wild, here's some trees, here's the dark, and have just reset your brain. It's not like that, right? So they can't just go and hurt themselves. They can't hurt other people. It's in a very controlled trial. Absolutely. And I mean, it, and the whole thing is, it seems like a lot of the benefit from, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the benefit from these psychedelic medications, it might not be just the administration of a macrodose alone, but it's the concurrent psychotherapy, right? That helps get people through these traumatic experiences. That's a great question. I think they need to do more clinical trials to see if it's solely the psychedelics influencing positive outcomes rather than the psychotherapy combined with the psychedelics, right? Because that's, that's an interesting question, right? So if these people didn't receive the psychotherapy, would they still have reduced trait in depression, like anxiety, depression scores at the end of the day that I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head or through the studies that I've read. Right. And I mean, but it makes you think mechanistically, we talked about these things, BDNF, we talked about these other mechanistic actions, independent of any type of psychotherapy. But if you really go back to someone like Freud and all the original psychotherapists, right, they use things like hypnosis and these other meditation and relaxation techniques to just put the user at a more comfortable setting so they can actually work through some of these deeper rooted issues. Yeah, those Freudian psychotherapists were great. I, I, they, were, they were stuck around for a long time, I think. Yeah, definitely. So to wrap things up, we really want to drive home the point that we feel like we need more research in this domain, okay? Whether it's from purely a harm reduction standpoint for users or true clinical applications in something like mental illness, we need to have these studies done. If there are negative side effects that we're just not seeing from these small studies, we need to tease those out, okay? We don't, we don't go ahead and we would never do studies this small for any type of pharmaceutical drug. So why would it be any different from something that we're actually considering, you know? I, I mean, I think it's, that's the result of big pharma. Big pharma is not going to make money off of these drugs that are much cheaper to produce even on your own. And then it's getting them off of these SSRIs that they're going to take to the, to the day they die pretty much. Right. So, right. And you can't patent something like psilocybin. It's just impossible. And I think the world needs to change its mind on it first. They need, we need to remove that negative stigma. Definitely. And I'm very interested to see where that goes. But as always, we hope you learned something from this podcast and we truly can't wait to see you next time on the Function Health Podcast. Take care, keep learning and stay healthy.